0: And welcome to Faith FM, you're listening right across Australia on 87.6, 87.8 or 88 or on the internet. This is The Breakfast Show and you are joined this morning by Lawson and Bradley Moody. Ah,
1: Brad, great to have you back. (laughs) I'm excited to be here, mate. I missed you guys yesterday when I wasn't able to be
0: here. You are the first person, the first host that we've had this week, other than myself, that has been here twice. (laughs) So Monday we had Monica, Tuesday we had Hannah, Wednesday we had Brad, yesterday we had Ernst, and, uh, now, uh, Brad, you're, uh, you're back. I'm excited to be back, Lawson. Thanks for having us. And obviously that's because you just, you're just so excited to be here, as yeah. you just said. You're Absolutely. Just, you're just such a gun and, and the listeners love you and like, <laughs> praise the Lord. So what are you grateful for this morning, Brad? Ah,
1: this morning I am grateful for new beginnings. My wife and I have just laid a deposit onto a property down oh. in Outback oh. Gong, if you've ever heard of Where it before. Is that? that is down about 20 minutes out of Kaura. Okay. Yep. Yep. I, I know <laughs> what that is. I've been to Cowra. That's good. Most people have sort of got an idea of Kara, but yep. they've never heard of Gulagong. Anyway, oh, so no. <laughs> we are excited to be out there. It's going to be really cool. But it is some big changes, especially with a newborn on the way, as yeah. we discussed last
0: time. Uh-huh. That is amazing. That is something truly to be grateful for. And I guess for myself, I'm uh, tomorrow at church, I am preaching a message. And then afterwards, I'm doing a training for people on how to give Bible wow. studies. So Praise the Lord really uh, having the opportunity to enable people from my church to share their faith is is such a blessing. Is such Absolutely. a blessing to me. So that is incredible. You're listening to The Breakfast Joe podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Welcome back to Faith FM, you are listening to The Breakfast Show, and right now it is time to get into our first clue for the quiz.
1: Ah yes, our first clue for the quiz today is, who am I? -hmm. Joel and Abijah are my sons. They accepted bribes, perverted justice, and followed after dishonest gain. Wow, so this guy maybe wasn't the best dad, or at least he didn't <laughs> have super great sons. But in any case, if you have any idea who it is that we are talking about, you can go in the draw today to win the Earthy Canvas Vegan Cookbook by Faye Kazzy. Mm. Just literally send us your uh, your responses to 0491 064 669 if you are interested in getting into some healthy mm. canvas vegan cooking.
0: Now, we've been promoting this book all week as the draw and i've already got a slew of names ready to go in a randomizer um on google and so therefore like guys we're close we're counting down we're closing in on that book being drawn it will be drawn uh towards the end of the show so stay tuned for that uh but yeah guys zero four nine one zero six four six six nine whose sons uh were named joel and bija and you know did terrible things apparently (laughs) perverted justice and took bribes and yeah, not, not living, not living up to, uh, to uh, quite to their parents legacy, probably. Yes, not to the appropriate standard. That's right. Hey, Brad, what's happening in the world of good news?
1: Ah, well, yes, onto some better news with people doing better things than what Joel oh, nice. and Abachar were doing. Um, we are looking at the MIT researchers oh, who wow. have, yeah, recently designed and, um, invented a less than 10 kilogram desalination portable plant.
0: Okay. Wait. So, so you can just like, Rock up anywhere, chuck it in. And bam, you have, you have
1: drinking water straight out of the ocean if you need. So there's obviously plenty of options for usefulness Uh for it. Um, but yeah, 10 kilograms, which is much less than the usual. Usually they're, they're quite an expensive and quite a hefty thing to cart around with a bunch of different filters that they've got to pass through the Mm -hmm. water, Mm -hmm. pass the water through. But this particular desalin, desalinization plant uses a new technology called iron concentration polarization. Ah. Which sounds fancy, but all it basically means is that use electrical, um, currents passing over the top and bottom of Mm -hmm. the water running through a channel, um, to remove the particles such as bacteria, molecules, viruses, and salt as they flow past, which are eventually discharged. So, yes,
0: desalinization in your hands at your fingertips. That is like if you want to live beach life, if you just want to live in a tent on the beach <laughs> and just stay there forever, if you've just got this, you know, this desalinization mas- machine and it's and so, like, okay, so you'd need a solar panel and this machine Correct. and yes. then you could literally live anywhere.
1: You basically could. And they have thought of that. They have connected it so that it uses less power than a cell phone charger. Oh, that's crazy. it can be connected to a small solar panel to be used
0: portably without power. Okay, it's it's 10 kilos is the weight of this thing. (laughs) Yet it's using less power than my phone charger, which is, you know, my phone is like... Very, very light, much lighter than 10 kilos. So that <laughs> is, so. that is incredible. Oh wow. Oh man. This is just like, I always have this thing with people, you know, like when you do like, would you rathers and you, you talk about a couple of different situations. My, my, one of my go to would you rathers is like, would you like, Never eat food again if you just never got hungry and were perfectly null- nourished. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, no, like, I just enjoy food so much. Like, food is so great and I could never live without it. Like, and I love spending time at the table with people. But for me, I'm like, dude, I would never eat again if I didn't have to. I would just have so much time and I could just do anything. Like, just... <laughs> Go up into the mountains wherever I want, but this is literally giving you the ability to do that. That's, ins- that's incredible. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it's not
0: providing you food from the ground. Oh, okay. Yeah. The water. Definitely. Water. Yeah,
1: exactly. the, the most needed component. Absolutely. Here. Yes. 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 <laughs> it de- definitely adds an element of convenience to life. Um, mm. in other news, uh, a U.S. police officer has been filmed in a, in an heroic climb to save a baby girl from a raging wow. apartment fire over in Orlando, Florida. That's um, awesome. Uh, uh, Deputy William Pazinski was filmed climbing on the outside of a two-story building in Orlando to rescue a one-year-old girl whose mother was screaming out for help basically, he had to uh, 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 scale a balcony and had to balance on the edge of one of the balcony rails to be able to actually get access to the little girl and then bring her to safety. Mm. Uh, So just an incredible story, but one of the, um, I think what's worth mentioning as well is that there is some other unsung heroes in the story just mentioned as in passing at the end of the article, where the Red Cross is also providing emergency assistance to 20 people left homeless as a result Mm. of the fire. So uh, heroes all around in Orlando, mm. Florida. Mm. Shout out to uh, Deputy
0: Pazinski. Yeah, just getting it done, climbing up the ladder and putting his life on the line. It's interesting. Like, he's not a fireman. So I dare say he probably didn't have the equipment or the suit or anything like that, but he's just like getting it done. And it's, it's good. Like, he, he hears the cries of the mother. Obviously, like, he assessed the situation and he saw that like because it would be a worse off thing if he just ran into a fire and just died yeah absolutely. that would be a, like a really really terrible yep. situation and like then you know or say like he passes out due to smoking like inhalation and then then he has to like your know, other people have to come in and rescue, rescue him, him there and after. the exactly girl right. like that could be a terrible situation but he's seen it and he's gone look this is gonna be a a big a big mission but i have the the, the capacity to do this and he He's got it done and he sa-
1: saved a life. That is why he is the county sheriff, obviously. That's he's why. the guy that people can <laughs> trust in. You know? He's the guy that you can depend upon to get it done, as oh, you that's, said. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's finally, amazing. in um, other news, we have a, a company in uh, France called Glowy that has decided that they want to set up street lights using bacterial bioluminescence mm. as opposed to the standard electrical uh, type. Type of lighting for streets, oh, which wow. is super exciting, using bacteria and fungus for good things. Whereas usually, uh, in my line of work as a podiatrist, um, they are only ever bad things. You're so just, you're trying to get them out of there, <laughs> exactly right. We mm. do not want bacteria and fungus, but if we can put them to good use and use them to light our streets,
0: uh, make them our slaves, then
1: then it's worthwhile <laughs> having them in the world still.
0: <laughs> yes, if we can if we can colonize bacteria and uh, put them in this way, then they're good. Okay, so. So it's bioluminescence and they're just like putting it in as you said street lights and whatnot they are, yeah, basically just taking these
1: marine bacterium and they are putting them into um, boxes, these football-sized tubes, uh, and they give off around 15 lumens of light. Now, I mean, that doesn't... If, if you know anything about lumens and light, 15 lumens is not that many. And this is one of the, uh, I, I guess, the criticisms of the system is that uh, luciferase, which is the name of the the, the, the bioluminescent mm-hmm. uh, organism uh, that they are using to create the light, is not really producing as much light as the uh i guess the typical leds or mm. globe lights that are otherwise used and so there's they're about 75 percent off the mark of the standards uh, mm. that they are supposed to attain to to allow minimum allowable street illumination according to the eu mm. so there's a lot more research that needs to go into it mm. and they are there are some other firms and scientists that are investigating other fungi and plants which can also contain luciferase uh, mm. such as glowing mushrooms or twinkling i like this one twinkling tabacum plants tabacum ah, tabacum that's the word i yeah, was after okay. <laughs> twi- well of course everyone knows what tabacum is but nobody knows what tabacum is so yes <laughs> <laughs> that's clarifying now that one, lawson the twinkling yeah. tabacum, tabacum plants are also being uh, s- suggested as an option
0: the amazing thing about bioluminescence and particularly when you like observe fireflies and these kinds of things is that the light that they give off is 100% or 99% efficient because their light doesn't make any heat. Most lights nice. most lights make heat as well. And heat is like, you know, if, if you guys know anything about how energy works, like heat is wasted energy. And it's yes. like, heat is like the enemy of creating energy. So you have a car, it has an engine in it, and without a cooling system, it'll get hot and just die. Because when you create energy, um, things usually heat up.
2: There Unless
0: it's 100% efficient, which things like bioluminescence and like these lights in nature um, actually have the ability to do. So it's... It's it's wild, it's crazy, but ultimately, um, I would really like to see, you know, because uh, like, what's the color of these things? Just... It looks, to, it's hard to describe. Obviously, we can't give you a picture, but That's it's right. kind
1: of like that sort of that light bluey lagoon kind of color, kind of like get. tealy. Yeah, so okay. it's a beautiful color too, one that I, you know, I would not mind walking in the light of.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like you know you could have like a street light. You could maybe take out less street lights and then have lots of these bioluminescence And it might make it up the trick, yeah, absolutely. might, might work out. So, yeah, d- it could definitely make us more efficient. To their that. credit, they are using
1: billions of them within each one of these football-sized tubes. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different.
0: And right now, we have another clue for the quiz. What is our second clue, Brad? Second clue of the day is I asked,
1: does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices Ooh. as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Mm. If you're a good Bible scholar, you'll know where that is found, and you'll then be able to recall the story and who it is that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And if you have that in mind, do not be afraid to get in touch with us on 0491064669 via text message. As our phone system is still currently down unfortunately that mm. number again 0491 if you know who it is that we're talking about and you can go in the draw to win that amazing cookbook by Faye Kazi yep and
0: that draw will be drawn at the end of the show so towards the end of the show in the second half of second second half of the second hour that is <laughs> when we will be drawing so guys please stay tuned and also if you get this answer correct, if you get the person correct, your name will go in the draw again. Maybe if you've answered previous clues or quizzes correct. But that's the thing. If you if you only answer today correct, uh, your name will go in the draw once and that is still a chance to win. So 0491 064 669 is the number two call. Cool. But right now, let's get into some news from around the world, but also from Australia. So, A couple of days ago, I talked on air about specifically the Religious Discrimination Bill, what it is aiming to do in Australia in terms of employment in Christian schools, and how exactly that will go down and work. Now, uh, I've just been, you know, reading up on some different articles. Again, we're coming up to an election, so this is an election issue. And what has just been highlighted to me recently, and something that we already knew about, is that very similar legislation was already passed down in Victoria Mm -hmm. um, that was Called the uh, stronger protections against discrimination. Um, what was the Equal Opportunity uh, Religious Exemptions Amendment Bill of 2021? So that already that's passed. A powerful. <laughs> yes, that's right. That already passed down in Victoria. And the specific goal of the legislation was religious. This is a this is a quote from the bill: Religious organisations in the school will only be able to make employment decisions based on an employee's religious belief where these are inherent to the job religious bodies and schools will still be able to practice their faith, teach their beliefs, and set the religious ethos within their organization. So what they're saying is, okay, yes, you're allowed to be a Christian school. You're allowed to, you're allowed to be Christian. You're allowed to, you know teach Christianity, Um, but even that fact kind of comes under fire when, you know, we've had stories uh, on here before about parents complaining about different, Mm. you know, Christian messages and whatever it may be. But then also the other side, we're kind of seeing this polarization within education at the moment of one side of, you know, uh, education just being, you know, uh, really hardcore in terms of teaching radical gender ideology and all these mm, kinds of things mm. and parents complaining. And then on the other side, it's like uh, we covered a story earlier this week about a school who supported a charity um, in which the founder had tweeted things that the the parents of kids who went to the school saw as homophobic. And we read the tweets on air and it was like, oh, wait, this is just someone who disagrees with the LGBT lifestyle, which is mm, a mm. lot of people. This isn't like he's not saying like I hate gay people. Mm. Uh, But, you know, he's just tweeting, oh, the LGBT lifestyle isn't something I disagree with. And then all the parents get together and complain and make the school, you know, Mm. release ties with the charity. So this is definitely the conversation that's happening in, in that space. Now, again, this legislation says that, okay, schools are allowed to practice Christianity. They're allowed to be Christian schools. But it's specifically, you know, where this bill is targeting is in the area of employing teachers and the definition of roles as to does this role in a school um, actually require you to be a person of faith to practice it? Mm. And so it started with people considering roles with, uh, like, for example, you know, a receptionist or a caretaker or whatever it may be. It's like, oh, is that a role in which someone needs to practice faith? Uh, because in other workplaces, they, you know, in the accounting firm, A person doesn't... To be a receptionist, you don't have to be, uh, you know... Faith-based. Faith-based. You don't need to be subscribing to a particular faith or set of beliefs. But now, as this bill was rolled out in late 2021, and we're seeing, you know, the effects of it taking place, um, and the government is kind of checking in on schools and seeing, you know, okay, what is taking place? What what is their employment practices like? They're also uh, really focusing on schools' constitutions and ...job requirements and, you know, role descriptions. For example, an example was brought up of a receptionist. Uh, And in some schools, like, uh, you know, it's understood that the role would have, you know, uh, participation with, you know, mingling with the kids and the parents and whatever it may be, you know, representing the school. But then also... You know, being involved in prayer, in the spiritual life of the school, being a representative of the Christian life, um, as the school requires, um, uh, you know, at sometimes when schools are connected with churches specifically, um, uh, be a pastoral support to families coming into the front office, um, offering support and prayer to students seeking first aid treatment, like these kinds of things, you know, mm. a receptionist can do all those things if they are. A Christian, yes. um, and that that can be entailed in the job description or the role description yep. as a receptionist. And now this legislation is like, oh, well, is that what a le- a receptionist really needs to do? <laughs> and this is where it starts to get sticky because it's like, oh, if a receptionist doesn't need to do that, and then a, a caretaker doesn't need to do that, well, then does a maths teacher do- need to do that?
1: Yeah,
0: or you know, because maths isn't religion, but you know. They're a teacher, but maths isn't religion. So you should be able, there's, there are uh, maths teachers who aren't religious. So, you know, and then it's like, oh, well, what about the English teacher? What about the history teacher? What about the geography teacher? Mm. And then if you have to, like, this, this snowball continues on and you're starting to redefine roles based on, oh, well, you don't need to be religious to do this, then, You could potentially get a situation in which it comes all the way up to the point where, oh, the only role in which you need to be religious to to be working at a Christian school is to be like a religion teacher or a chaplain Chaplain, or something like that because they're specifically religious. But then at that point, do you really have a religious school? (laughs) no not really i don't think you could justify that statement that's (laughs) right do you really have a religious school and i think as as i view the bill and i view the aims of the bill the answer is no um Mm. because Mm. once those definitions get changed for those job roles and then if you for example let's take it back to the receptionist uh example if those different stipulations are taken out of you know giving prayer to students and all those different things, because mm. the government has viewed that a role like being a receptionist shouldn't require that. So therefore you need to change your constitution. Then from that point forward, you cannot discriminate in Ohio based on faith. Uh, and by discriminate, I mean, you can't preference faith. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which then at that point I'm like, you're undermining the entire purpose of the school in the That's first right. place. So this That's right. That's right. This is the thing: you
1: can't be compartmentalizing parts of your life like that. You need mm-hmm. to understand Like, and I think this is what the bill can't take into account very mm-hmm. well: is that like you you are not separate from your Christian life. Your mm-hmm. your Christian it is who you are, and and you are that person in that role when you're fulfilling your job description yeah Uh, do you know what i mean you can't you can't separate that and all of a sudden you're going to start fabricating masks or or you know you know pseudonyms you're going to have to be somebody else Mm -hmm. when you're in front of Mm -hmm. the public arena because of um some restriction that's been placed upon you in that sense
0: yeah that's right but i think from the from the other side ultimately you know yeah it's just why would a christian school want to posture themselves to the point where they're not christian and now that actually has taken place in a lot of schools you know Mm. i I know a a local school here in newcastle it's probably like one of our top schools in terms it's one of the most expensive schools that you can go to and it's one of our top schools in terms of like atar mark and graduation everything and and, uh my family not being religious they Mm -hmm. they but you know two of my sisters being very academically gifted and going Mm. through uni and getting very good marks in the atar all those kinds of things um ended up going to this school now this school is anglican based Mm. um they Mm. are they are like Connected to the Newcastle Cathedral uh, here, you know, right across the road. Um, yeah, yeah, there's just no culture of Christianity in that school at all. Um, and that is because simply the school doesn't want to do that. Um, mm. And that is perfectly fine enough to the school. But when it comes to schools that actually want to give Christian education and have people yeah. fulfilling those roles that can represent Christianity, to the kids, like... It's your choice if you want to teach in a Christian school That's or not. It. Yeah. Uh, it is 100% your choice. And especially in an area like teaching, which at the moment, there are plenty of job opportunities in teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, like yeah, Like all job markets, it's, you know, relatively difficult to get a job, but there's plenty of opportunities. Why do we need to take away a school's ability to teach according to their faith when that faith isn't illegal? Like Christianity exactly right. isn't illegal. Therefore, you know. We should be able to teach according to the faith. So, something to keep in mind, especially as we approach the federal election, just to see what the different parties' perspectives on that are. You're listening
1: to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different.
0: And you are listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM. And right now, we are going to go into an interview with John Cosmeyer from Adventist Aviation. But before we do, we'll just have another clue for the quiz. Here is your
1: third clue. From year to year, I went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. If you have any idea who that is, send it through two zero four nine one zero six four six six
0: nine. Right now, this is Lyle and John Cosmeyer.
3: Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Breakfast Show on Faith FM. And joining us in the studio right now is Pastor John Cosmeyer, who is a veteran pilot, first got his licence back in 1973. John, we're going to talk about Adventist aviation and uh, mission flying, those kinds of things right now, but how many hours have you accumulated over those years? You've been flying for a long time now.
2: Yeah, it's over 800. Over 800 hours?
3: And Mm -hmm. how many different types of aircraft? (sighs) I think I stopped counting at about 65. Okay, that's a decent number of different types of aeroplanes.
2: John, tell me, why was it that you decided to get your pilot's licence? Because I got sick of sitting on a mission ship doing 17 knots, eight forward and seven up and down.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's that's quite time-consuming. Of course, back in 1973, I guess it was, did we own many aircraft back at that time?
2: Yeah, it's not only the number of aircraft you own, but also how much you fly. And at that time, a lot of airplanes that we owned were in Papua New Guinea and the islands of the Pacific. They were very, very efficiently used all the time. You talked about being stuck on mission ships and looking up to
3: the skies and thinking, you know, 140 knots would be a lot better than this." Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Whereabouts did you start your flying, your mission flying?
2: Well, let's start with sailing. I was in the Medang mission, the Medang area. Yes, yes, been there. And that's where I became a ship captain of the Malalangi and the Carcelli and others, and then we went to Kaviang. But Kaviang was where there was a very good airstrip, and there was an aeroplane sitting there that I couldn't use. And so I decided that I'd come back to Australia and get my pilot's licence.
3: Now, you talk about these very good airstrips that they've got. Are these airstrips that are dating back to the Second World War, was that when they were built?
2: Oh, some of them were built a lot earlier than that as well. But the Second World War really put the cap on them because if they were bombed, then they were redone and as a result, they had good services. Yes. And uh, places like KVN and, and uh, Madang and Laurent and Manus and so on, they all have very good airstrips.
3: Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you've headed back to Australia, got your pilot's licence. Where did you do the majority of your flying for those early years?
2: I ended up doing most of my flying in Australia, actually. But I did, right. go, I did go back to New Guinea in 1987, logged up a few hours there, flying in the Highlands. But I was also the principal of the school, so it was split time. But interestingly enough, one of the planes that I flew in New Guinea, Sierra Delta Charlie, was an aeroplane that was bought by one of our church members right in Newcastle. And he has got that flying for Adventist Aviation in Australia out of Cessnock and Warnervale and is now called Romeo November Golf. Oh, is that so? But on the nose of it, we've got the nickname Charlie, so... For us, you know, we have a real soft spot for that plane because it was such a good aircraft. It was a Cessna 206, a six-seater. Yes. Which yes. is, which is ideal because you can put sheets of iron in it and all this sort of thing. It's got double doors and.
3: You now know. we started in the South Pacific with what was it? Sierra Delta Alpha? Was that the one that, um.
2: Sierra Delta Alpha was the very first one. And it was and, a Cessna 180? And it was a Cessna 180. And then. The next one was Seattle Delta Bravo and that was a Cessna 185 and it had a pod underneath it where you could put more luggage in it. But uh, Alpha, I think we've sold that twice and bought it back. (laughs) Uh, And so we now have it as a heritage and it's going to become the centre of the uh, the heritage uh, building that's going to be put up. A lot of hours on that airframe. Yes. Yeah, you're looking at something like probably 14,000 hours.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a tremendous yeah. amount. So Papua New Guinea is renowned as being one of the most challenging environments on the planet for flying, not just because you're dealing with steep mountain airstrips, but you're dealing with some very rapidly changing atmospheric conditions. Did you ever find yourself in trouble flying in Papua New Guinea or other places?
2: Well, the problem is that the valleys are too steep and too deep and the runways are too short, and so you're always flying. At the level of emergency, yes. And so you get one go at landing because they were one-way trips. Yes. And so when you took off, you were going the opposite way to when you were landing. So you don't
3: get to land. You don't get to choose which way will I land? Do I get to land into the wind? If you've got a tailwind, you land with a tailwind.
2: There's one approach, and you better follow that approach because there's none other. You either make it or you don't.
3: And you're you're also dealing with incredibly high altitudes in Papua New Guinea. And you know some of these, we're talking about Cessnas here, which are small aircraft. They're going to be struggling to reach some of those, you know, very high altitudes that those mountains reach up to.
2: When you get a Cessna two hundred six, a magnificent aircraft, we love them, and they're very easy to fly and they'll carry a lot of stuff. But their ceiling was twelve thousand five hundred feet. Yes. And the highest mountain in Papua New Guinea is 15,000. So you've always got your wings below the level of the land.
3: Yes. And if you get into one of those valleys where it's too narrow to turn around and you run into a dead-end valley, that can be uh, (laughs) quite the challenge.
2: Well, we have a little trick that overcomes that and uh, it's what they call a wing-over. And so you fly along and then if... I mean, you should not be there, but if by chance you do get caught for some reason, you just poke the nose up in the sky and then you... Stall it onto one wing. Do a stall onto one wing and then you turn around come back the way you came in and hope that the valley was wide enough. But, But valley flying, you never go up the middle. You always go up one side. So if the engine does stop, you've got... You're able to turn around, whereas if you're in the middle... You're flying into high ground both ways. Yes. Not a good move. We
3: never think about when we're flying in Australia where we can be well above the terrain and have all kinds of different options. But New Guinea, that's a different cattle official fish altogether. Yep. Now, you said that you've done the majority of your flying in Australia. Now, you're currently heading up uh, Adventist Aviation Association. You're a veteran pilot, been doing this for very many years. What kind of work is that doing here in Australia?
2: It's shifting people... Yeah, it's a crazy way of saying it. But all it is is shifting people from one place to another place which is isolated and which needs the gospel. And so we take teams out there and the beauty is that we can go when we need to go and we can come home when we we want to come home. We don't depend upon uh, commercial flights and all this sort of thing. Um, And it enables us to carry what we need to carry and we carry teams of people who are committed Christians spreading the gospel of Christ. And interestingly enough, the book of Revelation says, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them, you know. And so the Bible already gave it as a forecast and uh, we are fulfilling that today with aeroplanes. Absolutely. When
3: we when you talk about these remote communities that you're flying into, I would imagine that you would if you know if you didn't have access to aircraft to fly into some of these communities would require chartering a flight. Would would, do all of these remote communities have commercial flights?
2: No, but you can charter a flight to where you want to go. Sure. Uh, And sometimes we do have to charter a plane because none of the ones that we normally operate. Uh, are available because they're being used somewhere else. For example, one aeroplane today, I got a telephone call to say that, yeah, yeah, okay, uh, it's just that I'm crossing the Queensland border now, I've flown up from Newcastle, and I'm on my way to Cairns. Right, so you're uh, not so, going to be able to access so that one for the next little while? XTX is not available, you see, and so sometimes I'll go to an club and hire a plane from there, sure, sure. And, and that happens, especially at Cessnock and Warnavo where they know us.
3: Yes. And how many how many aircraft do you have access to other than um, hiring something?
2: Well, we actually have two aeroplanes that are standard usage. One is the XTX, which is a four-seater Cessna 182, mm-hmm. and that flies at about 250 kilometres an hour in a straight line. Yes. It's not like a car where you have to... You no, know, oh, you yeah, absolutely. In, just it goes like, in a straight line. climb to 7,000 feet and there's nothing to hit. Yes. You because know, everything's below you. Um, or we go from Warnervale and that's Charlie, a six-seater. Yep, 206. And, yeah. And, uh, it, it'll do around about 270 kilometres an hour. In other words, 150, uh, 130 knots or 125 knots. That's
3: infinitely more efficient, uh, than, you know, jumping in a car and heading for the outback.
2: Well, for example, on a Saturday morning, I'll fly from Cessnock at 8 o'clock and I will be in Moree at 20 past 9. In time for church? In time for church. And then when you do Sabbath school, church, and then you have lunch, and then you have an afternoon meeting where people usually ask a question of what's going on in the rest of the world and our take on it. Uh, and then if that finishes at 4 o'clock, you're back in Cessnock at half past 5. Yes, how can you do that by car? You can't. And so, you know. And the thing is, when you do it by car, you arrive exhausted anyway. You, oh, the only thing you're fit for is to go to the toilet real quick and to have something to eat, and then it takes you a little while to recover. Well, what's happened to the rest of the day? And so, flying is just so effective in certain areas. Yes. You don't do the short runs. No. You do that by car. And the really long runs, will you stay overnight anyway, which is okay. Sure. But it enables you to do that in between flying very effectively because people don't knock off until 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon and they go back to work on Monday morning. Well, it would take them two days to go there and get back, whereas now you do it on the Saturday Sabbath and they've got the, the whole of Sunday to spend with their family. And when it's all said and done, you know, our job is to look after people, isn't it?
3: That's right, absolutely.
2: So you don't save one by inflicting another.
3: Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's a fantastic point that you've got right there. Tell me, how much has flying changed since you began in 1973? That was a few years ago, and I would say that, you know, navigation would be a simpler thing these days than what it was back then?
2: Yeah, it's a double-answer question. One is, in Australia, we were flying 182s and 206s. Yes. And we've done that for the last 50 years. Very yes. effective, very efficient, inverted commerce, relatively cheap. But in Papua New Guinea, you you can no longer get aviation fuel. You can only get jet fuel, which means that, all, that of, so? all of a sudden you've got to now have aeroplanes that have a jet engine in them. Do
3: you have a turboprop?
2: You've got your turboprops. Totally different story. And so the flying has changed a lot. Why is that? Why did that change in Papua New Guinea? Well, they started building roads. Right. So people go by car. Yes. Into the very isolated areas. You have aeroplanes that fly in there, but they're the the jet prop ones. They fly up above the clouds and Yes, and they can
3: climb right over the top of Papua New Guinea.
2: Yeah. And so Avgas was always very expensive, whereas the local aeroplanes that fly between the major towns, they all use uh, jet fuel. fuel. And so why not get a little plane with a jet engine in it and then you're back in line with what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And so I have seen that change in 50 years. Yeah, wow. Will that change come to Australia at some point? I have my sincere doubts about that because you see there's another stream of flying in Australia. You've got the, the GA the general aviation, which yes. is Cessnas and Pipers and, and, and all these other planes. But now we also have uh, recreational flying. Yes. And so recreational flying, a totally different kind of aircraft, and they will always need... Uh, avgas. avgas. And so uh, my guess is that, you know, for the rest of my lifetime anyway... That will not change so much in Australia.
3: And also we don't have the altitudes that they've got in Papua New Guinea and those high altitudes, you know, the turboprop really does come into its own when you want to climb over a mountain range and just, oh, you yes. know, point the nose for the sky and, yeah. and get away from those, uh, clou- those clouds that are filled with rocks.
2: Yeah. Well, with Adventist Aviation, we used to, whatever airstrip we were on, we would go straight to 8,000 feet and then you'd head for the gaps in the mountains. But once you've got a turbo, then you head straight for 12,500 feet. That's right. And so that, there's a lot of... And then the you can fly
3: in a straight line in Papua New Guinea.
2: Uh, yes, most of the time. <laughs> you've still got Indeed. the mountain Wilhelm sitting there at 15,000 and you stay away from that when there's yeah. clouds around.
3: As a fantastic ministry, we really love what you're doing here, particularly you know here in Australia with uh, Adventist Aviation where you are supporting the outback. Um, aircraft do come into their own in the outback. You know, I know on many of those stations out there, so many station owners, you know, they've got an aircraft, you know, an aeroplane sitting in the, often a one seventy two or something or other sitting in a uh, in a hangar on their property simply because it's just a practical way of working in the outback. Um, and, and, and that, and that they applies can, to ministry.
2: And they can park it at their front door. They, exactly. They use an aeroplane like we use a car. Yes. And so, as a pilot for AAA, you start using your aircraft as well as a motor car, it's just that you travel further. And it does something for the people who go out to do that ministry. So few people living along the coast in Australia know anything about the inland. And when they go out there and spend a day with the people who are out at Burke and Tibberborough and in homesteads around, they come home in a state of shock. They never realize how those people live. And the good quality that those people are in education and in understanding, and the farms they they run, and the huge distances they travel, and so on, and it's how it gives them a totally different perspective on people who live in the city and suburbs. So
3: Tivborough—that's a long way out. You head that far out?
2: Oh, we can go out that far, but it's just another one of the places. Yeah, so.
3: just another one on the list. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Um,
2: we we go. I used to live in Narromine. Yes. And fly to my church at Broken Hill, seven hundred and fifteen kilometres from my front door to the front door of the church. And I jump in a plane and be there in three and a half hours.
3: What are your needs at Adventist Aviation? Uh, you need aircraft. You need pilots. What 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 are your needs? Yeah. yeah. Donations. The
2: the, the biggest. Difficulty is to get pilots because it's so expensive now to get your pilot's licence for a GA aircraft. Yes. Recreational is reasonable, but GA, and then you need a certain number of hours before you can actually uh, carry passengers to be covered by insurance and so on. And if you can find pilots, well, then what a blessing because whatever needs arise, you can call on somebody and say, look, can you take the plane and take this group out, whatever. And we're finding it relatively easy now to get teams of people to go out and do what needs to be done out there. Uh, but pilots, that's that's a really curly one. Mm,
3: mm. Yeah. Yeah, what a challenge. Hey, we're going to have to finish up, but uh, before we finish up, John, what was what was probably the most exciting experience, uh, maybe challenging flying experience you've ever had, maybe the most dangerous?
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in just plain straight flying, the most dangerous trip I ever did was out of Hoxton Park in Sydney. Is that so? That, that airstrip doesn't exist anymore. No, it's but all, but I, it's but all I, factories now. I went in there with the instructor one day and... Um, they uh, had a drink in the shop that they've got there and then we came out and took off. And Anyway, a couple of days later I decided to do it myself so I flew into Hoxton Park and went a short and it was uh, a grass strip and it was good. Yep. Landed there, had a drink and came out and looked at the windsock and I started to taxi down the runway, gave it the full bottle up we went and then all of a sudden the plane just went sideways.
3: So horizontal wind shear.
2: No, southerly buster. Oof. I'd taken off into the north, Yes, but the southerly buster had come through and caught me and I went across the top of the trees and cleared them by so little, and I went, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh.
3: Yes, that would certainly hold your attention. John, thank you so much for joining us here on The Breakfast Show on Faith FM. Love hearing your stories. Love it every time you come on the show, and particularly thank you so much for talking to us about uh, Adventist Aviation. Thank you. We've got the uh, 8 o'clock news coming up, and we'll be back with our Bible study, Encountered with God.